Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Matt Tebby. Matt has been a coach, communicator, and consultant for over six years with churches throughout North America. He co-founded Gravity Leadership and is currently planning a church, the Table Indy, in, you guessed it, the northeast suburbs of Indianapolis. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here. So we are in Easter tide, Easter season, as they say, where our first readings don't come from the Older Testament, but from the book of Acts. And here we have a reading from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, where Peter is retelling kind of the story of Cornelius. And what what has happened uh, with the Gentiles, and he's kind of telling the Jerusalem church what went down. It's interesting, right? Because we often tell stories differently, like in different crowds and different contexts. So it's here we get a snapshot of Peter retelling the story to people who probably were a little suspicious or apprehensive because of a new form of you know, of, of, of the gospel taking root on the ground. Yes. Yeah, this is the sort of the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. This is sort of the pre-conference. This, yeah, that's you pay the extra for the pre-conference. Yeah, this is the pre-conference with the, with the invite only. And it's interesting, though, uh, what's going down here, Scott? I want to do like a thought experiment with you. Are you ready? I love thought experiments. Okay, you're, you're, in, a, you're, you're, fully, you're in a full-time uh, preaching gig right now, yeah? Yeah. A pastor? I, I, yeah, yeah. I preach every week. Okay, and you're in a denomination, yeah? Yeah. Give me, give me something in your denomination that would be as scandalous as God granting repentance and life to the Gentiles. Give me what would be on that level for your denomination? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, the hot button issues are often around sexuality today, right? I mean, those are, those are generally, you know, maybe, I don't know, that's an interesting question. You know, I, I think that's probably, yeah, I mean, sexuality is probably the, the one that, I mean, it's not, the RCA is not incredibly contentious. I mean, although, of course, it's in North America and the church everywhere is divided, but I guess the sexuality thing would be the biggest hot button issue around how we deal with uh, a group of, of people who who you know that that the, who they're you know that that their own sort of sexual identity see is is that there's division you know over kind of how you make sense of that and they're considered outsiders unclean impure in some fashion right yeah, sort of yeah. In, a tr- in a traditional so I'm in the same denomination imagine you and I are. Uh, we get together. We hang out in Philly, there where you are. Uh, we go to roof a rooftop for lunch, and during lunch we get a vision, and from heaven, like on a sheet, uh, every possible gender identity and orientation. I mean, LGBTQ plus 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 comes down on a sheet, and God says, "Hey, uh, these are clean." 
And then we get these three guys that come to us at lunch and say, hey, I want you to come. And we go to uh, somebody's house where there is uh, a room full of LGBTQ++ people. And the Holy Spirit has fallen. And there are people speaking in tongues and uh, miraculous healings. And then you and I go to our denominations and say, we had a vision and an experience. So it's time to change our theology. Yeah, man. I don't think, I think it would be, I think some people would dig it and some people wouldn't. I, I, I would guess, I would guess, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to go on a limb and say that there would be a bifurcated response. I, well, in my, in my denomination, I don't, maybe some bifurcation, what I'm, but, but most people would say we can't change millennia of our theology and practice based upon your ecstatic and charismatic experience. And what I'm struck by here, uh, because at least in my denomination, uh, Scott, you know, and we're doing a lectionary podcast. We, we both come from word-centered traditions, right? What would happen is they would say, well, let's take your experience at lunch, this vision you say you had, and let's take this experience you had in that flat with uh, all those people, and let's go back to the word and see what the word says. Yeah. Right? And what I'm struck by is that, like, it seems like the Jerusalem church came to an understanding of Gentile inclusion not through inductive Bible study, but by listening to the apostles' witness to what the Spirit was doing. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's. I think that's. That's fair. Yes. Well, that's challenging for me. Like as I read this as a preacher, that's really challenging because I I was taught to mistrust my subjective experiences of spirit, uh, any vision, right? So visions are not authoritative at all in my tradition. Um, and but but I can trust sort of the uh, grammatical historical. Rest, uh, you know, more obje- like f- somehow the inductive reasoning of scripture is more objective than a vision or an experience, and I'm challenged by that in this text. Yeah, is that a fair thought? Yeah, yeah. And what, what's interesting too is that the hang-up is not that Peter recognized that the Spirit was present and baptized them, b- baptized these Gentiles. That's not the controversy. The contra- the controversy is that he ate with them. And that there, so there's a sort of connection. It's interesting. I think like if you're having a, an initial meeting, like a you know business venture meeting, or or you're you're gonna discontinue some business venture, or you know it's your first match or Tinder date or something. If you're single, I don't know. You often have coffee or a drink. You don't have dinner first very often because there's a sort of intimacy in eating a full meal, and also it's harder to get out of if it's. Not go. You don't. You don't fire a staff member over uh, over dinner. You do it over coffee. You know. There's so there. There's something here that is is that you know. It seems that Jesus says they're going to make disciples of all the nations and baptize. And and you know, there's proselytes, mikvah washings that you know that rabbis do. But here, it's 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 that Peter seems to say that he was observant at least on this point, and that changed. Yeah. 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 I'm struck too by how I, I think maybe to the analogy that we chose between like human sexuality and Gentiles, they may be of different kinds, of different qualities. Um, because I'm just thinking about the Jewish imagination for Gentiles. It wasn't necessarily that they were uh, doing something wrong, right? It was that they were of the wrong kind of people to be inheritors of, like, uh, you know, like they say at the end there, that God has granted them even the repentance that leads to life. So there was something about their class, their kind of person that excluded them from the promises of Israel. And it seems like what's happening here is that God's revealing through a vision, through a charismatic experience, that they're, they are not excluded. Not that, they, not, that, not that what Peter 
presumes that they're doing sinfully is not sin, but rather what they're doing or who they are doesn't exclude them prima facie from the, from the kingdom of God. Yeah? Yeah. And what's interesting, too, in the text is, is that Peter has to be told three times. It's funny because you have the denial three times. <laughs> you have... You have Jesus questioning at the end of John, do you love me three times and then feed my sheep? So this, this sets of, th- it's like, it's the third time again, it's the period. Well, the third time I was like, okay, I, I, I would guess this, the set, the second time I would, I would think it would be enough, but the third time here, it's three times, thrice. I take one vision, man. I'll take one vision. That's good for me. I'd love to, I'd love to see something come out of heaven on a sheet. Yeah, so it is. It's interesting that also they have to sort of say that you know the the writing is on the wall here, right? There's that phrase in Daniel, and and you see that with Jesus. You know, the writing's kind of on the wall. The what the Spirit's doing, and it's up to them to. And you know, it's interesting. I love the conclusion. Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Yes, yes, yeah. So th- there's this undoing of partiality, undoing of distinguishing marks that I think Paul then continues to talk about. So there's not just Jew and Gentile, but there's slave and free, there's male and female, uh, you know, those barbarian, Scythian, those kinds of things. These these uh, distinctions we make based upon, uh, you know, exclusion and partiality that tend to govern our perception of God's activity and work. So, like, I wonder if today, like, for instance, in our political climate, you know, there's there's this assumption that democracy, that sort of a free market democracy is God's government. This is in America. And the S word, you know, when I grew up, the S word was a synonym for poop. Yeah. But now the S word is socialism. We're never going to be socialists. <laughs> never ever in this country. And I wonder, like, there's almost this sense of God can't be at work. God can't inhabit or accommodate a socialist economic construct. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that 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 surveys, like Gallup studies and stuff, are showing that people are more prejudiced over politics than race now. Like, people would rather have their child intermarry racially than marry someone from the other political situation, which, I mean, I guess it's good for race relations. I, I get it. I mean, I, like, hey, how do you evaluate that? Like, you know, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's just intriguing, right? Maybe race relations haven't gotten better, just political... Uh, it's gotten more tribal, right. Yeah. But this is, this is also, you know, in Karl Barth's stuff in his Doctrine of Election, he, he talks about just the, the sort of precarious nature of having two types of people. That if they're the sheep and the goats, that, you know, he says, you know, that, that Jesus is both the electing God and the elect one and the reprobate one. That, that everybody, it, there's only one kind of person, the kind of people that God is for in, in Jesus Christ. And so there's not two, because invariably, if you say there's two kinds of people, you say, but we got to treat everybody the same, but there's two. But psychologically, the force of that is just, it's going to go in the direction of two kinds of people. And so you, you have this, if you look, you know, it's, it's what Paul says, you know, we know, we regard no one any longer from a human point of view, because we, we used to regard Christ that way and, and we missed the boat. So when we see Christ that way, we see humanity that way, right? There's only one human being and it's, it's the kind that God is for. Yes, because in Jesus, Jesus is the lamb of God and the scapegoat of man. Yeah. Right? He's both the lamb and the goat. And uh, I know, I know Rene Girard gets, uh, gets a bad rap among a lot of uh, Protestants in America. But um, his understanding of... First of all, I don't think most Protestants in America read Rene Girard. But... No, but they get him distilled through mouthpieces. So they, get, they read sound bites and glosses on his work, at least uh, in my circles. And they reject him as, you know, Girard minimizes and reduces the cross to simply a moral example of how bad the scapegoat mechanism is. Uh, and I've 
Brene Girard was saying that. I think that would be a fair critique. I just see, I hear him saying more than that. But I think what he helped me see is that we have this need to be partial, to be prejudicial, to be exclusionary. And something about how Christ uh, reveals the end game of that desire we have, that we will scapegoat God <laughs> in a need to justify ourselves. Yeah, yeah, when human, I mean, human evolution, tribalism, in, in the evolutionary story, tribalism helped a lot, right? And so I think what's interesting... It, right, yeah. but it doesn't, it's not necessarily an, help us thrive. And you think of like Judaism and Christianity and in different in a different way, but related way, the Enlightenment project are both universalizing forces that, that sort of mitigate and, and go against tribal. And just like Jonah Goldberg's book, The Suicide of the West. And like when we're chronically anxious, oftentimes we fall back to the tribalism because, you know, the way like the sort of universalizing tendency is not kind of the natural response, right? It's the kind of, it's the better angels response. And so I think we're all, we're always a sort of chronically anxious season away from devolving to like the base state. And, you know, and you got to realize, you know, you, you got to eat, eat that, eat those uh, snakes, eat, eat that stuff on the, uh, <laughs> on the, uh, the spread out and the, uh, eat that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, man. I have a, it'd be interesting to, to, to test this out, but my hypothesis would be in times of disorientation, mass change in culture where, uh, a dominant hegemonic culture is losing its stranglehold and grip that you probably could galvanize a large group of people around rhetoric of scapegoating fear and anger to gain support and maybe even get yourself elected. Like that, you probably could do that. You, pr- you could make America great again. <laughs> don't want to hear about what kind of food you hate. You won't get no dessert till you clean up your plate. So eat it. Don't you tell me you're full, just eat it. On to onto the book of Revelation, 21 verses 1 through 6. We have the concluding kind of section of Revelation where we that the writer sees a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and earth pass away, and the sea is no more, and the holy city's uh, there. It's coming down to heaven from God, and, and we hear... The, we hear the announcement that God will dwell among mortals, that being their God and they'll be his people. And he is making all things new. And, you know, we have this, it is finished, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, and that's a great conclusion to be, to the thirsty, I will give water and a gift from the spring of the water of life. It's a beautiful portrait of the end of history. It is. And I, I've got a question for you, Scott. I was talking to a Presbyterian friend last week, and we were talking about male, male and female roles in the church. And he comes from a, a more uh, like a complementarian kind of background, and he was tying his understanding of what men and women do in the church together back to creation. And he, he kept talking about, in a very Reformed way, like there's nature and grace, and God in Jesus was reestablishing the created order, right? So this was what he was describing. And my pushback on him was, um, yes, but there's discontinuity to created order because of Revelation 21, because of new creation, because of the inbreaking of the spirit, because of the eschatological age, right? And so in our conversation, we were, we were wrestling with and maybe even disagreeing on to what extent is the project of God in Jesus Christ to redeem and restore all things a going back to creation or a going 
uh, going forward to new creation, and what is the continuity and discontinuity there? Yeah, I think I think it's a problem when Jesus sounds like Plan B because he's Plan A, <laughs> and 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 that's you know that the, I, I think people put too much into the in protology right in the beginning and not enough in the end, and I think that creation's initial goodness doesn't lie in its perfection but its perfectibility. It's not bad that the lion doesn't lay down with the lamb. Its goodness is that it can become a place where the lion can lay down with the lamb. So I think creation is always meant to go somewhere. There's always meant to be an, a, a, an evolving, a change. So there's not. So what we see in the beginning is not meant to be static, right? It's meant to, like the garden is always meant to become the city. It's not, the, the holy city and the incarnation are not plan B, they're plan A, right? And so that, I think, I think that that you know the end is determines how we view the beginning, not the beginning, the end. That's that's what that's my argument, Scott. You agree with me? Well, you were right, and he was, you were right, and he was wrong. Send him this podcast. I think we have to be tethered to creation, but we are being drawn into new creation. And there's and there's the orientation shifts at the cross, right? So our perspective then is looking backward from rather than looking forward to. Uh, yeah, no, Ephesians, Colossians, I mean, you, you, we read creation through Christ, not Christ through creation. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, I have a friend that says, uh, I'm a Christian, so anytime I go to the Old Testament, I need a sponsor, and that my sponsor's name is Jesus. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, this picture of new creation, though, is beautiful. I love, uh, something I want to explore more, Scott, maybe you already have done this, is sort of the divine council imagery in the, in ancient Near East, you know, and how there's this... Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Like, there's sort of the heavenly court, right? It's like Game of Thrones, where you see all the courtiers and other people there, the court... Yeah. Yeah, totally. And Michael, I think Mike Heisler has done a lot of work on this, and uh, I want to read up more on it, but there's this, you know, that phrase, and there there was no more sea, you know, the sea. Yeah, right, 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 because the sea is an image of chaos. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's, an, it's That doesn't mean that, that does, I think that's not to be taken literally in the new crit. They'll actually, you can swim, and there'll be beaches, but it's 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 a metaphor, though, I think, for there's not these boundless forces that are chaotic and and right. really deleterious to human flourishing. Right, like like that are enemies of God and trying to usurp his authority and destroying and and killing God's creation. And I, I think there's this this cosmic battle imagery that goes all through scripture. Since we since we don't share that cosmology, we just miss it. And so we think there's no more sea, so uh, <laughs> too bad for sharks and whales, you know. But I, I, it would be almost like if it said, and there was no more darkness, and we took that to mean, well, I guess there's no shadows then. I guess and anywhere light's coming from, it's not casting a shadow anywhere. And that's not at all what it would be saying. And we tend to over-literalize these things because we miss the cosmology, I think, of what John's operating in. No flowers, no wedding dress, that night we went down. Speaking of John, on to the gospel. We have John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, a short reading. And at, at, at the Last Supper, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. So we have this, there's, he mentions glory like five times, and then tells them that they'll look for him, but where he's going, they cannot come. And then he gives them a new commandment that they love one another, just as Jesus has loved the disciples. And that's how they'll know. You know, they'll know your disciples by your love for one another. 
Yeah. This seems this is it's interesting that Jesus calls this new, right? Uh, it feels like an old old commandment, right? Yeah, I think it's interesting because it's the the root of it is now yeah because it's it's not as though that you can't find that you're called to love each other and also I mean this is specifically to the body of Christ there are other passages that speak of loving the outsider but this here is is saying that the number one way to show that you're the Jesus people is that you treat one another the way you've been treated you know I I've come I've called you not servants but friends and yeah but the, I think the new thing is that the model for it is God come as a servant. So the so the the sort of template of it is different. Not not the not the the love idea but but the example which it's to be modeled after is a little different. Yeah, I think I think what was scandalous to these these people who are with Jesus wasn't that God is love. It was that the love of God looks self-emptying and willing to die for the sake of his enemies. Yeah, and the glory, like after Judas leaves to betray him, he says, now the Son of Man has been glorified. It's like, it's now my day has started. Now let the show begin. Where I think like John's gospel is different, right? Is in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cross is the humiliation of the Son and the resurrection is his exaltation and vindication. In John, the glorification and exaltation is the cross. The, the God is never higher than when the sun is low. And, and, and the, the God, there's never a place that God is higher than in humility. Yes. I think this is the, the most challenging verse for uh, me in John's gospel, that there's this sense in which what should typify and normalize the reputation of Christians is that they, the quality and quantity of their self-sacrificial cross-shaped love. And I, I just think about how, what a stinging prophetic critique that is to, I think, I was, I'll just stay personal, like my reputation in our community. I'm not sure if I, if you polled my neighbors that they would say, well, the first thing I notice about Matt is what, how amazingly different the way he loves people is than, than the way I love people. <laughs> you know what I mean? They'd be like, he's got a little, few too many weeds in his yard and sometimes he yells at his kids out the back door. I'm just struck by how, like, this seems like a, something that has been left unexplored and tried because of our anemic imagination for what love is and what love can do. It's interesting. In Dale Bruner's commentary on the Gospel of John, he says on, oh yeah, he says this about verse 33, you know, where he says, look, I'll be glorified, but where I'm going, you cannot come. He has own translations. You're going to look all over the place for me, but where I am going, you cannot come. As suggested, the only initial comfort I can draw from this text is the sobering and no doubt salutary truth that even disciples are unable to get to Jesus and so to God on their own or automatically or of course. Then at last, Jesus ends this sad verse in order, it seems to me, to make the fact not hopeless but hopeful with the very last word in the Greek sentence, for now. For now, in our present state, without the finished work of Christ and without the resurrection and the gift of the Spirit that accompanies Jesus' initial return and without the gift of faith in all these great realities, we are all hopeless creatures, disciples included. We need help as it is said in the streets, real bad. We disciples, too, are deeply needy human beings, no less than the rest of the human race, including even privileged Israel. So again, from the streets, listen up, because even we disciples need to learn, first of all, why, where I am going, you cannot come for now. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful, man. I think that's actually the pathway into this this kind of love that Jesus has modeled and commands them to follow, is, is this sense of utter dependency and helplessness. That doesn't lead to self-loathing and sort of passivity, but leads to a ruthless 
consenting surrender, you know? Yeah, without Christ, either, I think that weakness either leads to self-assertion. Oh, I don't want to feel weak and I assert my pride or self-loathing. But in Christ, it leads to the dependence where life is. It's You become the thirsty one that gets the gift from the spring or the water of life. There it is. There's the new creation. Thanks, my friend, for doing this with me. And blessings. Blessings in, in your ministry and in Atlanta this week. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again to Matt for being on the podcast, and thanks to you for listening. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.